Hi, Tish listeners. This is Tamar. I just wanted to let you know that you have a great episode about to start, but we did have some pretty serious trouble with the audio this month. We are working to resolve it, and we decided to release the episode even with some audio issues because it's a great conversation and we really want you to hear it. But know that we know it's not up to snuff, and we'll have it resolved next time we record. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shoal, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. And Zahava Stadler, joining us from northern New Jersey. Hi, Zahava. Hey. Um, I'm so excited to speak with you, ladies. It feels like it's been a really long time because we just experienced the holidays, basically every possible <laughs> holiday. Um, so um, this month on the podcast, we are going to be talking about the high holiday season and kind of reflect a little bit on what makes the Chagim or those holidays successful and meaningful or meaningful, depending on which we're going for. And then we're going to talk about the four mothers, uh, Rachel, Rebecca, Leah, and Sarah. <laughs> I don't know why I said them in that order. That was weird. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, the four mothers from the book of Genesis, we are reading those stories around this time of year, and we thought this might be a good time to kind of explore our reactions to them. So I guess let's just kick it off by talking about Rosh Hashanah. Let's talk about something that we really enjoyed or a positive experience we had during Rosh Hashanah and something that's kind of um, stuck with us since then. So my husband and I alternate which set of parents we spend Rosh Hashanah with every year, and this year was an in-law year. Um, so that means that I was in a shul where I don't really know anybody, um, and I was sitting on my own. And that can be kind of lonely um, and made me you know, miss my family and the people that I would sit with in a home shul. But um, I, I had this sort of funny experience that at the end of the second day, um, it, at the end of the second morning, I guess, the second service, um, a woman who had been sitting near me came up and introduced herself and said, are you married to the chazan? Like, was my husband the cantor? And I was like, no. <laughs> She's like, oh, you just know all the tunes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, you know, I won't say that I had the most meaningful Rosh Hashanah experience this year because my head was just in a lot of different places. But um, I do think that the thing that I really like about the way the Rosh Hashanah service is um, usually done in shuls where I am is that there are a lot of chime-in moments with singing. Um, even if it's just in between two lines of liturgy, there's a moment where the crowd together can just sing a couple of ah, ah ahs in a particular tune that everybody is sort of familiar with. And it, it feels like you're a more active respondent um, than you are in, in a lot of synagogue services. And um, I think the music isn't just a nice touch uh, on Rosh Hashanah. It feels like um, a real avenue for participation. So that's something I appreciated this year. Mm. That sounds good. Also, I love the idea that only the Cantor's wife would know all the tunes. <laughs> <laughs> like the poor Cantor's wife is like, has to be forced to listen to Rosh Hashanah tunes like all year long. <laughs> it's probably true. But I do feel like, for whatever it's worth that I am pulling my weight in the women's section. Yeah. Yeah, clearly. 
<laughs> um, Mimi, what about you? How is your Rosh Hashanah? I got really into Rosh Hashanah foods this year. Um, so every year my mom makes a round stuffed challah. So you like make a snake of dough and then roll it flat and fill it with um, lots of chopped nuts and um, brown sugar and cinnamon. And I, this was the first year I had made it on my own. Um, and feel like I got a good workout punching that dough down. I made several <laughs> loaves and just loved it and got rave reviews. So obviously positive feedback was welcomed. Um, so I was really excited about my round challah. And this year I insisted, I was excited about this tradition of serving a whole fish on Rosh Hashanah um, to symbolize, I'm not quite sure what the connection is, but there's a line in Deuteronomy, may we be the head and not the tail. Like I sort of took it to mean, may we like get out ahead this year and not fall behind. Um, anyway, so my husband and I cooked up, uh, I think three whole red snappers and it was so delicious. I even tried eating the head of the fish, <laughs> um, which is pretty gross. Uh, though almost I mean again. there are some was, there are some serve people serve who the have whole. the tradition of having a whole sheep's head on That's, the table. Right. <laughs> and that is a whole other level of I don't want to go there. So yeah. power to those people. I would definitely rather eat a fish head than even see a sheep's head on my table. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Just like feeling like the sheep is watching you <laughs> while you eat. Like, ooh. That doesn't make me feel like I'm yeah, coming out ahead at all. My brother-in-law, who um, brought the traditional foods um, to our family, like my, I didn't grow up with really any of these like symbolic foods other than apple and honey. And my brother-in-law um, abides by the modern version of bringing Swedish fish. Love it. <laughs> we eat those. Hats. Oh my god, that's awesome. That's a brilliant substitution. Um, I a couple of years ago like went really deep on those symbolic foods. And I liked it, but this year it just, like, didn't. We just didn't. Um, but I like it. Although I did not, I have never eaten the whole head. I mean, that is so brave. It's really fishy in there. <laughs> <laughs> what other things did you cook on the year that you did the deep dive? We did, oh, man, I'm not going to remember all of the Hebrew puns, but there's one for carrots. There's one for beets. There's one for like fish and then for fish heads so we had like a whole fish and then we like served fish separately that wasn't a whole fish at the meal um and i'm trying to remember and pomegranates i feel like that's it yeah um but that's a lot like that's a <laughs> lot of foods to cook um and like serve you know prettily at a fancy table so, um, but it's cool. I like the idea of it. So you didn't do that this year though. So what was, uh, what was big with you this year for Rosh Hashanah tomorrow? Um, so this year, um, I'm a, I've probably talked about this before. I'm a really big proponent of like bringing a book with you to Shul, um, on the high holidays so that you have something to read when you kind of lose focus or perhaps during, you know, like the Israel bond speech or whatever. Um, uh, and 
I was reading this incredible book that turned out to be really, really appropriate for the high holidays. It's called Anatomy of Injustice, and I'll put a link in the show notes. And it is about um, a man who was almost certainly falsely accused um, of murder and put on death row in Mississippi. And uh, actually, it might be in Alabama, I'm not sure. But he... The murder was in 1984. The book was written in 20, was published in 2012. Um, and it's just kind of follows the case and all of the ups and downs of it. And what was really, why it felt so right for the moment was that like, it was literally a book about life and death and about mercy and justice um, and about like, the big concepts of them and then like how they might go awry in execution. Um, I mean, in a, in, in the execution of justice and also like in a literal execution. Um, yeah. And it just felt, it felt really appropriate to be reading it, which was weird because it wasn't like I chose it with that. I, I kind of felt bad about the fact that I was reading like a true crime book but then it turned out to really like hit on a lot of the themes that I was thinking about um, in a way that really did like deepen my like spiritual experience um, and made me feel like I was thinking about what it means to like be, you know, written in the book of life in a different way. Um, and yeah, so it was like super super compelling and it was great because I I also really liked that I was reading it on Rosh Hashanah and so like I didn't know how the story ended um and like I wasn't going online so like I did not know what was you know if he had gotten out or what um and the book doesn't really tell you so there was this kind of like there there's no resolution really at the end of the book um and that felt also like really on point because it was this thing of like all of these big issues have been brought up. You're thinking about life and death and how serious things might be, but also like you don't know what's going to happen to you or to the people that you love. Um, and it doesn't feel as connected to, um, you know, whether or not you are good, um, as you might hope. Um, so yeah, it was like a weird, it was very unexpected that that was kind of the thing that brought so much meaning to my holiday. Um, but I really think it did. You know, Tamar, what that makes me think of actually is there's a line in the Unitana Tokef prayer, which is one of the sort of central prayers of both the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur liturgy. You're talking about who will have this fate and who will have that fate. Um, and one of the lines is mi bikitso u mi lo bikitso. So who will, essentially who will die at their appointed end time and who will die not at their appointed end time. And to me, this seems like, this always sounds like such a sort of a heretical thing to say. Like, what does it mean right. that in a world controlled by God that you might die not at your appointed end time? And just through the lens that you just brought out with that, um, with that, with the book that you were reading, it, it, it can take on this dimension of, um, you know, who, whose death will be essentially tainted by injustice and whose will not, um, which right. I think is not something that comes out in any of the other lines in Unitana Tokef. 
Um, and so it's really interesting to, right. to think about it through that, through that lens. Yeah. And the book also made me think not just about the man who was sitting in prison, who almost certainly didn't commit the crime, but also the woman who was killed and how like, she also didn't die at her appointed time. Um, and, and how the, the like focus had kind of really moved from her to um, the man who was in prison. And that felt kind of inappropriate. Um, anyways, it was really a, a very interesting read. Um, okay. I, I just wanted to know if there's anything that's still sitting with you guys from Rosh Hashanah and um, on the um, Unatana Tokef note, I have to say that on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, um, at where I was davening, we began Unatana Tokef. You know, the ark is open. The person who's leading is saying, everybody is going before God to see who will be written in the book of life. And then someone fainted. Okay. <laughs> it was <laughs> really 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 intense so um, and it was an older person she is okay but it was like there's not really a more intense moment for that <laughs> to happen um, and uh, yeah I don't really know what to say about it other than that I've been thinking about it since it happened and also like it felt kind of like a test and I felt kind of like I failed, but also like, you know, there's like 120 people in the room. So it's not like everybody can rush over to help her. Like I'm not a medical professional. Yeah. I don't know. I've been thinking about a lot, like what, what would have been the best thing to do in that scenario? And like, how could I have done better? Um, and uh, yeah, just like how intense that experience was for her obviously and also like for everyone like it just made for a really wild um experience so yeah don't recommend obviously but uh but yeah it certainly made the whole thing seem super real um what about you Zahava honestly I think that this year for me Rosh Hashanah really served less of a less of its own purpose and more as the like kickoff of the season. Um, and so mm -hmm. it was just an, Oh, like Yom Kippur is coming. I should really get my act together. Um, and so maybe that's more of a, a segue than a reflection, but that's really the purpose it served for me this year. What about you, Mimi? Mimi? <laughs> Mimi? <-la>? Um, <laughs> I have no idea what's going that's on. That's what my mom calls me. Um, yeah, I, it's, Honestly, it is so hard for me to even remember what happened over Rosh Hashanah. I feel like Yom Kippur really always sticks in my head. Rosh Hashanah, I struggle with. Um, but I feel like, as opposed to other years, I had done a fair amount of thinking and preparing and talking with others leading up to Rosh Hashanah. And that really helped me not feel like this sense of um, rush or hurry or even like this sounds dramatic, but it, it is actually how I feel at times. Like there's a little bit of panic with 
Rosh Hashanah. Um, and, and I didn't feel that this year. And I am really grateful for that. Now, that's not to say that I felt like I still felt going into Yom Kippur services, like a fair amount of panic and like regret and all of that. But, but I didn't set in until later. And that was good for me. So, yeah. I'm curious how the like shofar experience, like, how do you feel about the shofar? Does it make you, do you look forward to it? Does it make you emotional? Does it like, what do you, do you have a reaction to it or is it just kind of a thing? So I have, I always feel like I'm, I'm making an effort to be solemn um, during the shofar. And this year, sometimes I externalize that by being annoyed at other people who are not being sufficiently solemn. So this year I was giving like major side eye to two guys who were just chatting in the back of the shul throughout the actual blowing of the shofar. I was like, dudes, come on. Um, so not cool. Um, that is so and not cool. I wonder if I might have a different experience if I was a regular morning service attendee throughout the previous month when shofar is regularly blown. Um, I previously, um, so previous to Rosh Hashanah, I heard shofar just, just once this year. Um, I was only in shul one weekday morning, um, during the month of Elul. And I, I happened to attend a bris that, um, that was like a morning event in Elul. And so I heard the shofar at the end of that service. Um, but I actually did read an essay, um, this year about shofar that, um, really stuck with me. Um, so this isn't the first year that I've turned to this book, but it's a relatively new book. There's a, there's a book called When God is Near, um, which is a collection of uh, essays and lectures by Rabbi Yehuda Amital, um, who, uh, when he was alive, was uh, one of the heads of the Gush Etzion uh, Yeshiva, Yeshivat Haaretzion. Um, and so it is a, a collection of his classes and stuff specifically on the high holidays. And there is a short piece called Simplicity in a Complex World, um, which is about chauffeur blowing. Um, so this is this is one of the things that I actually read it on Rosh Hashanah afternoon and was thinking back to it on Yom Kippur afternoon. Um, so just there were there, there was a discussion of how um, during Rosh Hashanah, um, the Musaf service, which is like the second service of the daytime, um, includes three components, like three main thematic components. And one of them is called Shofrot. And it is a lot of like biblical references to the shofar, right? We, we have like a lot of psukim, a lot of verses that mention the blowing of the shofar in different ways. And he he points out basically that the, so the verses that we reference for this portion that all refer to the blowing of the shofar in some way, we do them in a funny order. Um, we don't refer to them in the order that they would appear in the Torah. First, we do the ones from Torah, which are sort of supposed to be directly from God. Then we do the ones from Kituvim, which are the ones that are sort of most rooted in humanity, um, least least divinely connected. And then the ones from Nevi'im, from prophets, which are supposed to be sort of um, direct prophecy. And he points out that this mirrors the shofar service itself, that every time we blow a sound um, from the shofar, first we have a tekiah, which is a long, unbroken, clean sound. And then in the middle, we have a broken sound of three bits or nine bits, and then another tekiah, another unbroken sound. And that this structure is like bookended by the divine shofar blowing, how it connects back to the verses from the Torah and from the prophets, but that in the middle we have kituvim, these like human ways of relating to the shofar, and that 
humans can only produce a broken sound, that life is complicated, that we are not able to do this like pure unbroken noise that he says, you know, when a baby is born, they can, they can blow a tequila. But after that, life gets complicated and, and we, we have this um, expression of brokenness. And that's something that we honor um, with the structure of the shofar service and with the way we talk about the shofar service um, with, these, with these verses. And that really resonated with me. Um, so I really appreciated that. And there was something, something this year about the themes of, you know, trying to create something strong that nevertheless was imperfect, that felt very powerful to me and came up in a lot of ways. Um, and so there's, there's another part of the essay that I actually want to share, but I think I'll share it as my endorsement, not to clog things up right now, but, um, but that was a really powerful theme for me this year that came out of the shofar. That sounds great. I'm curious, tomorrow what your reaction is during shofar blowing. I... So I played the trumpet for many years. Um, and so I often now blow the shofar. And um, I, I have kind of complicated feelings about it because I love, like, I feel very proud of myself when I do it. But I feel like when I'm, when I'm the one blowing the shofar, it feels very performative. Um, and it feels... Like, I feel really stressed <laughs> about, like, making a really good quality sound and really distinct staccato sound. Like, I feel a lot of, like, kind of um, performance pressure. Um, and I'm not – I don't ever get stage fright or anything. I don't think I've ever, like, done a bad job, but I just feel really intensely, like, everybody's listening right now. Everybody's obligation is to hear what I produce, so I can't mess this up. Um, and that does make it so that it's hard for me to feel like I'm connecting when I'm doing it. Um, I don't know what it even really means to connect, but like when I'm listening to someone else feel the show, blow the shofar, I often feel really emotional. Like it really does feel like a cry to me that kind of touches me someplace very deep and surprising to me every year. Um, but I don't, I feel, I feel intense feelings when I'm blowing shofar, but it's a different genre. It's more like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, don't mess this up, um, which is important. And like maybe kind of also the right feeling for the day. Um, but it's not the same as the feeling I get when I listen to the shofar. So I'm like, I'm kind of mixed on it. Cause I think, I think I do a reasonably good job, but I'm also wondering if like, Maybe I shouldn't blow shofar anymore because I'm not having the experience of listening to shofar when I'm the one blowing the shofar. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's something that I've been kind of thinking about. Um, and the, like, the stress of, like, knowing that I'm going to blow the shofar does kind of, like, stay with me up until the moment I finish. You know, it's like the hours leading up to that point are really stressful for me um I also like I've been to different services where like in some places people blow the shofar in the middle of the silent amida and some people don't yeah. and I like I'm on the I'm the chair of the ritual committee in my synagogue um hey. and <laughs> and I was like I don't 
I don't think we should do that anymore because I don't think we should blow during the silent Amida because I feel like the person blowing then doesn't really get to have a silent Amida mm-hmm. because that, that feeling of like, I'm, I have to like get in the zone for this is going to totally crowd out your ability to like really focus on davening. And also it feels weird to me to be like, everyone's silent Amida has to be at my pace. Like that also feels like a pressure to me that I don't love. Um, so whatever, I have complicated feelings about it, but um, yeah, it was interesting for me to like, feel like I could actually this year, like, think about them ahead of time and like that I felt like a little bit more prepared but that I walked away from it being like okay I'm not sure if like even though blowing the shofar is like an integral part of this holiday I'm not sure if I should do it because I feel like I can't then do the other important parts of the holiday um so if you blow shofar and you are listening I would love to hear from you about like how you deal with this or if you experience this at all because I am definitely struggling with it. Um, okay, let's move on to Yom Kippur since <laughs> I want to say so oh, yeah. oh. Go for it. Um, I actually, I think maybe in response to what you said, Tamar, I, this year, I, I almost always cry during shofar blowing. It feels like I really feel like the call to something greater, um, sort of shaking off some of the, um, I don't know, some of those parts of me that are really jaded um, and feeling pure and awake. This year, I cried a lot because the shofar blower is somebody who I'm just getting to know. And at one point, he just, it was clearly really hard for him to get the note out to like keep his energy up. And I started to feel like, what a service he was doing for all of us. We all needed him to be doing what he's doing. And that's a lot of pressure. Um, and I mean, one of the things about the shofar, like why do we blow from a ram's horn? Well, for some aerodynamic reasons, but also because that ram is like, is the sacrifice that was going to be Isaac. And I felt in this moment while I was crying for him or with him, like, that he he was offering up so much vulnerability of himself for the community. And it felt really powerful um, and like a really big call for me to like find whatever like my shofar service is that other people need, um, even if that means fumbling in front of people. I just, I don't know. I I think for those who can, I think I, I hear you about like it getting in the way of your davening and your practice. I imagine for some people, it feels like a really integral part of their service to the community. Oh, totally. I feel like those people feel more, perhaps more confident in their skills than I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I, I, I actually really love that you said like finding your own shofar service because it's kind of a pun. <laughs> like we have a shofar service, but also yeah. like, yeah, I actually really like that idea of like, what is your like service that you offer up? Like um, what is your kind of call? That's really cool. Okay. Now should we move on to Yom Kippur? Yes. Now we can. <laughs> um, all right. 
would you like to go first for Yom Kippur? Because you spoke a little bit about yeah. it already. Yeah. Um, I, I was really, so I, I'm a big on like disclosing and oversharing perhaps, but my father passed away in July and before he passed away, he really wanted to make it to Yom Kippur. So I was really like ready for Yom Kippur to feel like this big thing. And in particular for Yuskar to feel really big for me this year. I'm one of those people who I know it's not always like in vogue, but I would always leave for Yuskar feeling like I haven't lost a parent. I don't want to be in this service um, or a, an immediate family member. I haven't lost a parent or an immediate family member. I don't want to be in this service. Um, and so it felt really like, felt like a big shift for me to be in the service. And I felt really let down. I felt like Yuskor had been built up all my life and it wasn't anything. I think, I, so there's a lot to say about the reform service. But one thing that the reform service is really good at, maybe a little bit too good, is at framing what we're going to do and what sort of emotional experience you might have while we do this mm -hmm. thing. And in the service I was at, it was like, now we're going to do Yisker. If you want to leave, you can leave, but we're going to keep going. And it didn't feel like I was in a community, like I was being, I don't know, I just, I, I, felt really let down. Um, and that was disappointing. I think it did what actually turned around the service for me for Yom Kippur Day was the, during the Avodah service, which describes the temple service during Yom Kippur times, I actually, it was during that part of Yom Kippur that I felt most held by the community, most like I was um, experiencing something with other people, which I was actually had really come to Yom Kippur services for. Um, and I think in particular, when several times during the service, when we like bow down all the way and prostrate ourselves, like that felt, um, I don't know, it felt really moving. And it's something that is sticking with me in a way that I was really hungry for this year. Um, yeah. So Yom Kippur was great in unexpected ways for me. I'm sorry that you had such a hard time with Yisker and I am totally there with you. Hmm. I find it to be, I mean, I, I think we've talked about it on the show, but like, it's, it's really like emotionally freighted. And it's then it's like, when you get to it, you're like, this is it. Like, there's nothing to it. It takes like two minutes. There's nothing there. The, everybody has left and you're right. like, really for this and like but on the other hand I actually don't like it I personally don't like it when everybody when when communities are like please stay because I'm like I would rather if I'm going to like have a moment have it around other people who are like also having that moment um that's that's one of the things that I found about going to daily services especially just it happens to be that the daily service daily evening service that I'm going to is mostly people who are there to say Kaddish and it feels like a support group where we don't yeah. have to talk to each other which is awesome That's kind um, of and it feels like we're going through something different but similar and yeah I, 
that's more what I was looking for from this girl. What about you, Zahava? How was your Yom Kippur? Um, well, I think it, there was a lot going on, um, and there are a lot of different things I could say, but I actually, just in the spirit of how you're relating to the community around you, I had this feeling of, um, I was, I was really torn actually about where to be. So, um, the shul that I was at for Yom Kippur has, uh, an upstairs service, which is like this very big grand room, um, and a downstairs service, which is a much smaller crowd in a much smaller space. And it happens to be that this is uh, a shul where a lot of people who are not daily or weekly service regulars come for high holidays and go to the upstairs service. Um, and I went there for the nighttime for Kol Nidre, and I was just sort of standing in a large group of people who are not regular shulgoers. And I guess this is a, a theme from what I said about Rosh Hashanah. I wound up feeling very lonely um, because I felt like in my, at least in my corner of the room, I was the only one responding, participating being being an active part of the service, and I felt very conspicuous. Um, there's um, there's a line from from Sefer Malachim from the Book of Kings where um, the prophet Elisha offers this woman sort of a blessing or a you know some kind of spiritual favor because she's been welcoming and and hospitable to him. And she says like No, like I don't want any special favor. She says Like I sit among my people. Like I'm just one of the I'm one of the regulars here. Um, and Often on high holidays when it's very crowded, I really appreciate the experience of sort of vanishing into the crowd and being one of the people and feeling like the the first person plural of the liturgy is um, really true in that moment. Like, it's just we. Um, and this made me feel not like that. Um, and so the next morning for the daytime service, I went downstairs, which is a little bit more intimate and also doesn't attract um, very many people who are not regular shulgoers. And that in a way was a better experience, but then I felt sort of guilty about it um, because I want Yom Kippur to be a time when people who are not regular shulgoers can come and have a good experience. And I don't know whether this sounds like a, a condescending thing to say, but at the beginning of, of the Yom Kippur service, we say, we're here to pray with everyone, even the sinners, right? And I don't mean to imply that all those people are sinners, but the notion of being of it being an inclusive and expansive experience, um, right. I felt sort of guilty that I had sought out being included instead of including the other people, even though I don't think anyone upstairs deeply missed my presence. Um, but I, I found myself kind of torn about where to situate myself in the crowd. Um, and so that was interesting to, to think about because Yom Kippur can be um, so individual and so, uh, you know, inner in the in the almost literal sense of being introspective. Um, and so that was an interesting decision that I, I kept sort of questioning along the way. Um, and in the end, I, I had a positive prayer experience downstairs and I felt good about that. But then I also wondered whether it was the right choice in a more cosmic sense. Hmm. That's interesting. How about you, Tamar? Did anything stand out for you this Yom Kippur? Um, so I, my family always goes to New York for Yom Kippur and we um, daven at Kehillah Hadar. Um, this was my 10th year um, davening there for the high holidays. And it's really like an important 
time for me and I like can't foresee a situation in which we would skip that trip um and this year it was like really really excellent and honestly the Divrei Torah that we heard on Yom Kippur were like the best Divrei Torah that I've heard this year um I've just been thinking about them you know since the moment I heard them my sister my younger sister was there with us and I was so glad she was there because it was one of those things where like after one of the Divrei Torah was over I like wanted to talk about it with people and it was so nice to be able to like be sitting next to her um when it happened um so the two Divrei Torah that I heard one was by Dina Weiss who's on the faculty at Mechon Hadar um and it was really excellent I don't think that it is available online anywhere, but I will check. And if it is, I'll put a link. And the other one was by Professor Sarah Wolf, um, who teaches at JTS. And that one was just incredible. Um, She starts with this story that uh, was found in a book of Midrashim and is like very closely connected to the book of Jonah and also feels like super, super um, relevant to this moment that we're in in society and it, it just really like blew me away so I will I will um, post a link to to that drash um, on our show notes but I I, I don't want to say so too much about it because I don't want to like spoil anything because it does have some kind of like surprising um, twists but I really recommend checking it out because it was it, it really dazzled me and the reason that we go every year is because the singing and the like feeling in the room is just like so powerful. Um, it's really like the only space that I'm in every year where I feel like everyone in this room is like totally in it. Like it just feels like if you're coming to this service and you're sitting through it, people are just like really, I don't even know how to describe it. It just feels like everybody there is like super invested and people are like really singing and you feel like they're really feeling it. And like, sometimes that can be like a lot. Like sometimes you're like, I'm not feeling the way that person's feeling it. But like, (laughs) but like, it just feels like the most like intensely authentic experience um, that I have around liturgy every year. Um, Yeah. And it's just like incredibly powerful and beautiful and, um, yeah, it's like one of my favorite days of the year. So if you have an opportunity to come to Hadar for, um, for Yom Kippur, I, I really recommend it. Okay. So let's, since we've already talked a lot, um, let's just chat a little bit about Sukkot and Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. Like how, how did those go? What was like notable for you guys this year? Okay. Um, I, so I want to talk just briefly about my Sukkot experience because I love Sukkot and I feel like I never have the energy for it in the way that I want. Um, I love building a sukkah. I love decorating a sukkah. It's just always like when I'm trying to get a lot of other things done. Um, but this year I was able to carve out like good time, good energy made a really beautiful sukkah, which I'm super proud of. Um, and 
usually that's that's it for me. It's like, great, I build a sukkah, I invite friends over, we get to like do arts and crafts and sit in this beautiful space. But this year, now that I'm like going to services more regularly, I just had a really great on the Shabbat in Sukkot, um, reading slash listening to Ecclesiastes or Kohelet. I I mean those of you who have listened to the podcast know I, I love to laugh and I love finding sort of the humor in a lot of things. And I, I was just cracking up reading Kohelet because this guy is... <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that. <laughs> I think that this guy, this book, whatever, is just, it's so cranky to the point of like, you've got to be kidding me right now. Um <sighs> That would be very surprising reaction to Kohelet. <laughs> I don't know. I just wrote down some things that King Solomon or whoever says. Um, one verse is, don't say, how has it happened that former times were better than these? For it's just not wise for you to ask <laughs> that question. I think that's brilliant. Um, one was, keep your mouth from being rash and let not your throat be quick to bring forth speech before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. This is why your words should be few. And I just, I don't know, it, it, when reading it as a cranky old man, but also a man who has like tried a lot of different things and found that nothing has really felt super sustaining or enduring. I, I just, I was really drawn to it this year. Um, and I think. I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm talking, I, I'm setting this intention, like, I think it's actually a really interesting book to read with people who are older. Um, there's a jadedness and a, um, a pessimism, but also one born out of experience mm-hmm. that is a valuable voice, and one that I'm interested in listening more to. So I'm all about Suko. You get to craft and you get to just like laugh and shul. <laughs> that is an extremely surprising take on Kohala and I really like it. <laughs> this year actually was the first time I participated in a women's Kohala reading um, and read a chapter aloud, um, which was a great experience in and of itself. But also now next year, I feel like I should do it in the Mimi old man voice. It's a very different dramatic reading experience. Like set aside the cancellation and just do it in the cranky old guy voice. And it's so much more expressive. I had no idea. Oh, my gosh. It's all vanity, man. (laughs) (laughs) That was more like a stoned. The Reality Bites version of Kohala. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'm really excited for this. I, I'm coming to that co-highlight reading for sure. Um, that is awesome. Uh, other than your reading of Kohelet, did you have any exciting Sukkot or Shmini Yatzeret or Simchat Torah um, occurrences, Zahava? Well, I do want to give a shout out to uh, my husband and the good people at Home Depot. This is the first year we've actually had our oh, own sukkah. Um, 
Thank you. Yeah, we have, well, we moved apartments and we have a porch now. And this is the first time we've really had a space to put a sucker. And um, I personally had like not a ton to do with the construction thereof. And so all credit goes to my husband and his support team who really got it done. Um, but I think that as soon as we decided that this was going to be the apartment that we would rent, like well before we got here, I was like, oh, and we can have a sukkah this year. Uh, it was like the first thing I said about this apartment. Um, and so I was really, really looking forward to it. And then it was a really, really windy first days. And it was a little nerve wracking to sit in the sukkah as like the structure is shaking. But you know what? That's kind of the point. Yeah. And so um, so that was cool to, to feel yeah. like I was experiencing it more fully because in previous years, we've gone to parents or invited ourselves out or um, especially in the middle of the week, just done a lame job and tried to avoid foods that one would have to eat in a sukkah so that we could just sort of skip the problem. Um, and I've always felt like that's kind of a, you know, a disappointing way to do the holiday. So I was really excited to have the option this year um, to have our own sukkah. That's awesome. I just want to talk about um, Simchat Torah and Shmini Atzeret because I think I may have spoken before on the podcast about how like I don't get them as holidays and so our family's custom is to go camping um, for that Chag and like I cannot so for two years starting when um, my younger daughter was just like four months old we went tent camping um, which was cool but also like literally very cool because it's October, like it can be cold at night. And so it's like a little bit iffy. So the next year we started doing like cabin camping. So you just like rent a cabin in a state park. You're still like cooking your meals in the fire outside, but there's like a refrigerator. So if it rains, like you're not stuck. Anyways, we have now been doing this um, our, we call it Simchat camping. Um, <laughs> and we, which is also, I just realized this year that it's really good because of the term happy camping. Um, <laughs> um, so anyways, we have been doing, um, our camping oh. trip and this last year we went with another family, actually, um, David Svi and Yael Kalman, who have both been on the show in the past. Um, and this year we added another family. So there were three families with six adults and seven kids. And it was awesome. Um, it was great because like we didn't go to shul and we talked about how like we could have more people, but not enough that we would have a minion because we don't want to have davening. Um, <laughs> um, people who wanted to daven did their davening and like we did a little like singing and davening with the kids, but it was like mostly just hanging out the kids were basically like a gang and they just like went and did their their thing which was like so fun and like all the adults got to like stay up late talking and like drinking that's <laughs> like this is the best um <laughs> so and it just felt like such a relief to have this like kind of time in nature we were like in a state park which was like a very nice state park it wasn't like stunningly beautiful or anything but it was nice we were outside and we were like with our friends and like we were totally disconnected from everything else and it just felt like holy but not not in the way that I usually think of things as are holy like it felt like um you know 
sacred and not profane, but not like sacred in the same way as like Rosh Hashanah felt sacred. So anyways, loved it. Highly recommend it. Simchat camping um, is the way to go. Awesome. Okay. So the Chagim are over. We have begun the Torah again, which means that we are um, back or about to be back with some of our our old pals, um, the uh, forefathers and foremothers. And uh, we, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the foremothers, also known as the Imahot, um, because they're kind of like a big part of how people think about the paradigms of Jewish women. And I'm like super curious how you all react to the personalities and the stories and, you know, how... What do they mean to you, if anything? <laughs> so, <laughs> Mimi, when I put this in an email, you had a very funny response. So I think you should start. I mean, yeah. So I, I really, I, I did some looking. I found things that I love about each of them. But ultimately, it feels like it comes down to like, okay, you were barren and then God opened your womb and you had a baby and everything was better. Um, and you lived a really long time. And I just like, I don't know, I have a hard time with these stories as they're written in the Torah. I'm much more interested and compelled by um, some of the more modern midrash on the mothers, the matriarchs, um, that tries to think about what their lives were really like. I think I did... I played around on Safaria a little bit last night trying to read like some of the like more I don't know traditional midrash on them and those also felt gross to me um it's a lot about like I don't know I don't know just a lot about their bodies and like things that I didn't connect to um so I don't know I I'm happy to go through each of them with you and talk about like what is interesting to me about the Imahot, but big picture, what's interesting to me about them is that they do shape the the women's story and experience in Judaism, and yet their stories are really very similar often because they have to do with fertility and lack thereof. Um, and often just like not not joyful, not... I don't know. Maybe nobody's story in the Tanakh is joyful. I'm not making any sense. Somebody save me from myself. Well, it's funny because in in a weird way, this is the second time we've talked about the matriarchs. Not really, but kind of because we discussed the red tent uh, earlier this year. I was about to say. (laughs) And so for those who listen to that um, that discussion, they, they may recall me being generally irritated by the red tent and its total departure from the biblical text in ways that I just had trouble with. But the character that I was most indignant about was Rivka, Rebecca, and how Anita Diamond seemed to just create a new Rivka out of whole freaking cloth. When actually, Rivka is the only one of the matriarchs that I personally feel connected to and have actually a lot of affection for. Um, so, I, I mean, I could say why that feeling is lacking with the others, but just to, you know, just to do the positive flip side. Um, Rivka's pretty cool. Um, and she has a lot of uh, agency and proactivity. Um, she also has what is 
arguably a, a pretty solid marriage, which I think is not true in the others. Um, so first of all, like the marker of that, the marker that she's the right person to enter the story is a marker of her own personality. Right. So, um, so Abraham's servant is going to find a way for Isaac and he sets forth this test, like, will she show kindness? And, you know, she does this, this broad gesture of kindness that requires a lot of effort on her part. And the fact that that's something that comes from her as opposed to, and Abraham took a wife and her name was Sarai. Right. So there's a, there's a real sense of her as a, as a person from the very beginning. She is asked by her male family members whether or not she wants to enter into the marriage and makes an affirmative choice. Then we have what is arguably the cutest verse in the Torah, which is she sees her future husband and falls off her camel. (laughs) Um, And like, that's the beginning of a marriage that's described as like a a couple that loves each other, which is not something you see a ton of in the Torah. Um, She's also the only one of the imahot that is in no way replaceable, right? When she encounters her infertility, she doesn't get, uh, you know, her husband doesn't marry some maid to have children in her stead. And so they just wind up dealing with it as a couple um, and, you know, both of them praying. And then she also is described in the text as um, as being her own prophet, right? She's having a, a strange pregnancy and she goes to seek out God. And then like Rashi demotes her and says that he, she actually went to someone else, right, to to hear their prophecy. But no, like the text says, like God spoke to her um, and she has this prophecy experience. And then as the story goes on, there's this really interesting situation that occurs with her two sons where she deceives her husband into potentially into blessing one of, one of the sons over the other, um, which is a really interesting story, but there's a lot to explore there, and there's a lot to explore about Rivka and Rivka's choices and motivations. Um, and um, it's actually as a as a side endorsement, sh- shout out to the book Wrestling Jacob by Rabbi Shmuel Klitzner, which does a really good job with this um, particular incident and, and um, really reveals interesting things about how it arises from Rivka's choices and also from her marriage to Yitzhak. But all of that said, I'm just saying she's like a real person. In the Torah, and and I think is is the only one of the matriarchs that doesn't feel defined by her fertility, um, it, even though she experiences infertility, and um, and so I I I'm all about Rivka. Like I think that that um, that she's the matriarch for me. Um, so that's that's why I got so indignant when the red tent just like turned her into someone else entirely, much more so than with the other characters. <laughs> You made a very, very good argument for Rebecca being the best of the four mothers. And also, I really want to attend the yeah. cutest verse in Tanakh competition. <laughs> <laughs> so would like to see what else is up there with uh, her falling off her camel, which is a great line. <laughs> um, I agree that I don't have a lot of affection for the Imahot, actually. Like, I... I feel like I try, but like they're really challenging people, which is also true of the Avot. But I feel like the Avot are actually, um, they are more deeply ingrained in the narratives of our people. And so like the fact that they are really problematic is like part of the point. Um, And I feel like that's less true for the women. Um, Like a lot of work is kind of done to try and make the women seem better than I feel like the text actually thinks that they are. Um, 
And with the exception of Rachel, who for some reason, well, even she, I mean, um, it just seems it's weird to me that the, the, they don't, they don't seem so great. Um, and the stories are like kind of upsetting. Um, and also like bad things happen to them. Um, like really terrible things, like the whole thing with both Sarah and Rifka being kind of like taken as Paro's wife, and then it being like, a, like that that whole narrative, which happens more than once, is like really, especially this year, maybe like a really intense story to imagine um, from her perspective. So yeah, I'm not a huge fan, and I, um, in particular, this year, I keep thinking about the line in um, Breshit in Genesis chapter 23, where it says, And the life of Sarah was a uh, hundred years, 20 years, and seven years. Um, but it says the word years between, you know, a hundred years, 20 years, and seven years. Why does it say that? And there's like a, I, I believe it's Rashi says that like, each of those is kind of each of the kinds of years is like a symbol of how um, at the age of a hundred, she was like a person. uh, She was like a person who was 20 in regards to sin. And when she was 20, she was like, um, she was as beautiful as a seven year old. (laughs) And like, I remember even when I like first learned that in grade school being like, what do you mean as beautiful as a seven-year-old? But like now it's like even weirder to me that that was the like paradigm of beauty was a seven-year-old. Like it's, that's a midrash. It's not in the text, but it really like freaks me out um, and feels really yucky. Um, yeah. So I will say that I have trouble with the Imahot, but um I also, I do feel like the the conversations that the text seems to have about what it means to parent and to want to parent um, are things that I, that do resonate with me. I'm just like not sure that the way that it kind of is lived in Tanakh resonates with me, but it's like, I feel like some of the core ideas I, I get. I don't feel like a really intense connection. And I feel like the, like, I think it's really interesting that the names of the foremothers, like, have been really popular for a really long time, but they seem to be a lot less popular now. Like, my grade had, like, seven girls named Rachel in it when I was in school, and I don't know anyone who's had a baby and named it Rachel in, like, 15 years. Like, it seems like there's been kind of a... Now, I don't think that necessarily has to do with the stories in the Bible as much as other things, but it's, like, interesting to me that that has happened recently. So I have to take this moment to throw in an anecdote. Um, A rabbi of mine, when I was living in Philadelphia, was telling us about attending uh, or officiating at a baby naming for a daughter. Um, And the parents told her, that we're so excited. So you're the first person to know our baby's name is Valea. Have you guys heard this? I can't tell Valea. if it's an urban myth or not. Um, no. And the rabbi said, that's a beautiful name. What does it mean? And they said, 
are are you kidding me? Like we say it every time we have services in the um Avov Imahot, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Valea. And they had named Oh man, that cannot be true. <laughs> it must be an urban myth, but it's a good myth. Um I have to say, I think in preparing for this topic, the one of the mothers that are the matriarchs that I was most like looking for something about was Leia. And I really struggled to find, I think there, there are some amazing things about Leia um, names, her children giving thanks to God. And maybe there's some stories about her expressions of gratitude and how that's sort of a defining feature of hers. Um, but she feels like the most of a most mysterious to me. Um, and I just, I, I can't stop thinking about the moment of what was supposed to be Rachel's wedding where her father just replaces Rachel with Leia and Leia sleeps with Jacob and is wondering all sorts of things about what was going on, whether it was something that she wanted or didn't want, um, something that worked out fine and they had a good marriage or whether it ruined her relationship with her sister. I mean, there's a lot in just that one huge, but that one moment um, in Tanakh that I have a lot of questions about and I'm curious thinking about who she, what sort of person that is. Isn't it so weird that we invoke that moment at weddings that people are often like talking in the bedecken about like, oh, we're going to like check that it's the right person before we put the veil down. It's like, I have so many questions about like, why, why are we invoking that story when we got the wrong person? And like, why does anyone think that like checking that you have the right person before you put the veil down is some kind of like effective guard against a switcheroo happening as if it's impossible to like take a veil off and put it on someone else. Like, I don't understand like what, (laughs) what it really is getting at. Just to put in another plug for Rivka. uh, One of the other explanations for that custom is that just after Rivka falls off her camel and just before she sees Yitzhak for the first time, she veils herself. um, And that's how they encounter each other for the first time. So that is perhaps a less creepy explanation for where that custom comes from. <laughs> you know, one of the liturgical references to the matriarchs that I've always found interesting is that a lot of people have the custom to bless their children on Friday night. Um, and the core blessing, the original blessing doesn't mention the matriarchs. It says um, in a callback to when Jacob Yaakov blessed his two grandsons, Ephraim and Menasha. Um, he says, and I'm just looking at the text here, uh, he says, So Israel in the future will bless according to you. That uh, God should make you or situate you like Ephraim and Menashe. So that's the original blessing. So this was adapted generally for a blessing for children and is traditionally given by a lot of people on Friday nights to their children. Um, But I was doing a little bit of research on this this afternoon. It seems like sometime in the 17th century, there cropped up a desire to have a girl-specific version of the blessing. 
And the text that became popular was instead of saying that God should make you like Ephraim and Menashe, that it's Yisimech Elohim Kisar Rivka Rachel Valea, that God should place you like each of the four matriarchs. So I wonder how you guys feel about this adaptation, because my instinct has always been to resent it. Because the original verse doesn't say anything about boys. It says all of Israel will bless each other with reference to Ephraim and Menashe. And the notion that we need a girl-specific blessing just seems to come from a place that everything is gendered and that you couldn't possibly... Hmm use boys as a reference for girls. Like you have to have a girl thing. You have to have a girl specific version, like that people in general should mean boys and that you have to have a girl way of doing things. And then, well, once you need a girl way of doing things, okay, well, who are the women that we have? Oh, well, the matriarchs. We should just always slot in the matriarchs. We always go back to the matriarchs as our models for girls. And that's even though Ephraim and Menashe are not in any way parallel characters to the matriarchs. It's not like the standard version of the blessing, uh, you know, makes reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who would be the parallel characters. It just seems like, oh, we don't have a lot of women, so we go to the matriarchs. So that always feels a little bit fake to me. And this isn't a custom that I grew up with on Friday night. I, I didn't get this blessing on Friday night from my parents, but... I would have no problem using the original text, Ephraim and Menashe blessing for a daughter. Um, But I wonder if maybe I'm just being a little contrarian about this. I'm sure there are a lot of people who feel very positive and beautiful about having a specific daughter blessing and about the notion of the matriarchs as models for their daughters. And so maybe I'm a little bit alone in this, but I'm wondering what you guys think. Is this a custom that either of you grew up with as a kid or tomorrow? Is this something that you do now with your daughters? I mean, I did grow up with it and I also, I share your resentment for it. I like, don't get it. I don't, it seems weird to me. It also is weird to me that, um, you know, when we, when we bless our daughters on Friday night, we give them the priestly blessing, but it's in masculine. It's gendered as masculine. Um, and um, that mm. also annoys me. And I always, I I have a friend who has mentioned that they have like feminized it for their daughters, which I think is nice. But I like, I never think about it until I'm like about to put my hands on my daughter's head. And then I'm like, the pressure is too high. I can't like do it on the spot. I want to like proof it with someone before I like change a blessing. And then it's like too late. So, um, but I actually would like to do that sometime because it feels, it's weird to me because I totally agree that Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah are not at all congruent with um, Ephraim and Menasha. And also because it's like, it does feel like, oh, we have to do girls for girls and boys for boys. But it's like, it's not about that. And those aren't even the girls that go with those boys. Like, um, whatever. Yeah, I'm with you. I find it to be really weird. But that's kind of like something that I find universally. That just like a lot of times it feels like we've been like, oh, we have to do a girl thing. And then it's like, okay, let's find some girls. And not like, how could we like it doesn't feel like it was genuinely derived from whatever the same idea was that like made the original thing. Um. Yeah. You know, one thing that I'll say about what's significant to me about the way the blessing is worded is that the original verse is a little bit, it's a little bit of an unusual choice of words. So it doesn't say 
God should make you like Ephraim and Menashe. It says Yisimcha, which means God should place you like Ephraim and Menashe, or maybe situate you like Ephraim and Menashe. And, you know, if you had to ask yourself why Ephraim and Menashe, I mean, we don't know a lot about Ephraim and Menashe in the text. I mean, I know there's like a lot of Midrash material about why Ephraim and Menashe, but from what we know in the text, if you had to choose characters in the Torah that had a pretty good life, Ephraim and Menashe seem like a pretty good bet. Like they grew up in a royal household, especially up to this point when they're being blessed. They probably were pretty well protected, pretty prosperous, pretty happy. And we don't know a lot about drama that occurred or misfortune that attached to them. And that's not something you can say about the matriarchs. It's not like you would want to say to your daughter, God should situate you like the matriarchs. He should give you their lives. I mean, their lives are not easy, prosperous, really happy lives from what we can tell from the text. Whereas I'm, I'm totally comfortable saying to, you know, what, what do you want as a parent? I would be totally comfortable saying to my child, you know, you should have a life of, of safety and security and prosperity and be able to live in a, in a happy way. So that means that might seem like a bit of a humble hope when you contrast that kind of goal with, you know, spiritual fulfillment and spiritual mm. greatness. But if there's anything you want from for your kids, like first and foremost, it's it's happiness and a, and a good life. And that is not something that you would extract from the way the Torah talks about the lives of the matriarchs. I always heard that Ephraim, we say Ephraim and Menashe because like they never lived in famine, really. Um, and that like, that's what we want for our children is that they should never like, not have enough to eat. Um, and yeah, but it is kind of like, well, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah did. <laughs> so is it like, okay for girls, but not for boys? Like it just doesn't, it doesn't feel great. I agree. I think that maybe we should move along to endorsements. Yeah. Um, Zahava, would you like to kick it off? Sure. So uh, first, the endorsement that I planned, which is that you guys probably know that the New York Times has been doing a series called Overlook No More, um, which is obituaries for people who were underrepresented in their usual obituaries, which were mostly white men. Um, and there's a really interesting obituary that I found recently. So it came out back in August, but there's a cool obituary for a Jewish woman named Clara lemlich Shavelson. So she was a labor leader in the early 20th century, and she really helped organize and uh, mobilize people for the garment workers strike that really catalyzed a lot of the labor movement in the first part of the 20th century. She really kicked off something called the Uprising of the 20,000, which was a strike mostly involving Jewish women um, that led a lot of uh, garment producers to start recognizing unions and raising wages and things like that. And in fact, one of the few holdouts mm -hmm. was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, where ultimately there would be the really tragic fire that would spur a lot of future labor reforms. But I had always learned about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory as like a real kickoff thing. And I didn't realize that they were actually a holdout from a process that was well on its way um, and had been kicked off. Um, by this Jewish woman in particular and, and by a lot of Jewish women generally. Um, so I thought that was really interesting and, and great to read about. So we'll share a link to the obituary in the show notes. Yes. And if you um, have a perhaps pertinent to your life and not too long, uh, there's an excellent children's book about Clara Lemlich called Brave Girl, 
that I highly recommend. Yes. Check it out. Oh, really? That's so cool. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I wanted to talk through in endorsements is that I mentioned there was another portion of the essay that I had referenced during our Rosh Hashanah discussion, um, Simplicity in a Complex World, um, by Rabbi Huda Amital. So that essay is really drawing on the idea that the human experience is really imperfect and there's a lot of brokenness within it. And that brokenness contrasts with, but also coexists with the perfection and the unbrokenness that comes from God. So he takes this in a really interesting direction. There's a really famous story in the Gemara, uh, in the Talmud, about the oven of Achnai, a person named Achnai. And the way I would normally summarize that story is that a group of sages is arguing all on one side against one individual rabbi on the other side about a technical and pretty uninteresting thing. And they all want to rule one way. And the one sage on the other side wants to rule the opposite way. And he marshals all of these divine signs in his favor. You know, if I'm right, the river will flow backwards. If I'm right, the tree will. And and all of these signs come and prove that God agrees with the one sage. And they still rule like the majority because that is the rule on how to make rulings, that uh, the legal opinion goes like the majority in the human courts. And the upshot of this is the law is not in heaven, right? That humans have agency in the process of, of making and understanding Jewish law. So that's how I would normally talk about it. And I would normally skip over entirely what the dispute was about. But this essay goes into what the dispute was actually about in a way that I think is really interesting. So this oven was composed of many parts, many pieces of clay or shards that were joined together with sand. So there's a debate between the sages that has to do with the laws of purity, essentially about whether or not this thing that's composed of pieces counts as a single whole vessel. Can something that's made of these broken pieces be a whole thing for the purposes of purity or impurity? And the big group of sages say, yes, this is an entire vessel. And the lone voice on the other side says, no, this doesn't count as a whole vessel. It's a bunch of individual things. It isn't considered a vessel for the purposes of the laws of purity because this isn't a real vessel at all. So according to Rabbi Eliezer, an oven that is not one single piece basically isn't an object at all. It's not a single thing that could uh, contract impurity according to the laws of impurity. It just doesn't count. It's not a real object in the world. So what Rav Amital says is that Rabbi Eliezer lived in an ideal world where wholeness is defined in absolute terms. A hodgepodge of stone and sand does not meet this definition. The sages, on the other hand, accept an imperfect combination of pieces stuck together with sand as a complete vessel because they recognize that we live in a complex world that is itself imperfect and incomplete. So Rav Amital doesn't really close the loop on this, but I think he doesn't have to because he assumes his audience really knows the story. And I think if you place this in the context of the story, it becomes even more powerful because if you say, yeah, sure, you can call on God for proof that your opinion is right, that, um, that reality is defined by perfection, that perfection is truth. But then it becomes all the more important that that's not how we decide the case, that God's word is not the final word. Because what it says is we live not in the divine realm, but in the world of human beings, and that that is sort of necessarily imperfect. And to be a human being is sort of by definition to be a hodgepodge, to be improvisational, and that that still can be real and that that still can be true. Um, 
and that still can be a, a, a genuine fact of, of the world that, that this thing can exist, even if it's not perfect, even if it's pieced together and improvised. So that idea was really powerful to me. Um, and I recommend the book in general. Um, it's called When God is Near, a collection of essays about the high holidays by Rev Amitel. But this one in particular, I really wanted to share this idea with you guys coming off our discussion of the high holidays. Cool. Mimi, what about you? What do you endorse? Um, well, I want to, in my love for Kohelet Ecclesiastes, um, I re-found, um, they're now under a new name, but I knew them as the Godcast videos. These are animated videos, I guess for children, but still perfectly enjoyable for adults, um, that take each Torah portion and also each book of um, prophets and writings and put them to sometimes a music video, sometimes just an animated video. Anyway, they're no longer called Godcast. They're now called Bim Bomb. Um, Godcast is a Christian website now. <laughs> but um, anyway, there's a really good Bim Bomb video on Ecclesiastes. Um, and it's a really catchy tune. And I'm, I don't know, in my love for Ecclesiastes, this tune became sort of the soundtrack for it. Um, so I will include that and really encourage you to check it out. Even if like the idea of animated Kohelet doesn't speak to you, give it a try because I think it's really pretty. Um, the other thing that I wanted to endorse, um, I have to thank my friend and like very dedicated Tish listener, Aaron Taylor, um, for alerting me to a book called, well, it's a, an autobiography, um, Rachel Kaloff's Story. Um, so Rachel Kaloff was um, a Russian Jewish immigrant to the United States in 1894. Um, and she and her husband were homesteaders in North Dakota. Um, and she describes her life in Russia, but focuses mostly on um, what it was like to be in North Dakota on a homestead um, in the early 1900s, um, trying to live a Jewish life. She talks about Jewish practices and holidays, um, and also just about, you know, scratching out a life there for herself and her kids. Um, and I just, I don't know, this is like a deep cut of talking in Shoal, but um, we were once talking about Jewish summer camps and the Jewish summer camp that I imagined was actually Little House on the Prairie, but Jewish. <laughs> and I'm so happy that this this um, this book, this memoir exists about living a Jewish life in on the prairie. Um, and, you know, it's also one about I'm still working my way through it, but um, it's in it was an arranged marriage that turned into like a true partnership. Um, and yeah, just a really good moment in American history that I was so pleased to see also is a part of Jewish American history. So um, I'll include, there's no ebook for Rachel Kaloff's story, but I'll include um, the link to the Amazon description of it. And really like highly endorsed, very pleasant, 
read. That sounds yeah. really awesome. It is really good. I have read it. My mom is was obsessed with Rachel Bella Kayla. Oh yeah. And like my mom wrote basically like a fan fiction story which i would be very happy to to send you and um uh and not only that but my mom and my dad traveled to north dakota where rachel belakilov is buried and like with some other friends and like they met with her like great grandson or great great grandson and they did like a ceremony at her grave like my mom was a really big Rachel Bellagala fangirl um yeah I I wrote my fan fiction of Little House on the Prairie reimagining it as Jewish um and so I could totally understand wanting to write Rachel Rachel Bellagala oh my gosh yeah I'm so sorry that my mom never got the opportunity to talk about it with you because she would have been so happy. Um, Yeah, that is a great endorsement. Um, There's another one called something like And Groundhog Wasn't Kosher or something, which is a similar Jewish woman living on the prairie situation. Um, I would like to endorse a book that... um, I have seen people reading around the Hakim for like many years and kind of rolled my eyes at. It's called This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared by Rabbi Alan Liu. Um, and I just kind of was like, yeah, yeah, and did not think that it would really um, speak to me. But um a friend of mine who I really trust, David Wolken, um, mentioned it as like an incredible book that really was meaningful to him like last year. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll like just check it out of the library and see if it really does anything. And like, y'all, I am a changed woman. (laughs) It It made a big difference. Like I like had some very serious, like, realizations I don't want to call them epiphanies but like it really changed how I thought about things in a serious way I had conversations with people that I would not have had without this book that really I hope changed the trajectory of relationships in a um, serious way and um and it's just it's really beautifully written um he is a rabbi in northern California and he like does he is, he's kind of a philosopher. He, he's a Buddhist. So he talks a lot about like um, big philosophical ideas, but he also does a really good job of bringing in like lots of anecdotes and stories of people that he knows um, and stories from kind of his life as a congregational rabbi and like stories from Chassidut. And like, he just does a good job of not making it feel ever like a lecture and much more like a kind of like a, a thing that you learn in different ways. Um, and I really found it to be incredibly powerful and meaningful to read. Um, and I will say like, get the book now so that you have it next year and like start reading it the month before, because it really starts with Slichot and goes all the way through, um, Simchat Torah. So like do, I think to best case scenario is you really start reading the book a month before Rosh Hashanah. So you're like really prepared when you begin Rosh Hashanah. I started reading it like 
two days before Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> so I I feel like um, next year I might have a different experience if I re- read it again, which I totally might. So yeah, check it out. That sounds great. You know, I've actually seen people reading that book and been skeptical, but I think that we'll actually do it this time. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> worth it. Like, I feel like you give it two chapters. Um, I believe it's the chapter about Slichot that is called This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. And I feel like that is the chapter where it's like, if you get through that chapter and you're like, this isn't for me, then it's not for you. Um, but I definitely came into it with like a raised eyebrow feeling super skeptical. And I definitely found it to be really meaningful and impactful. So yeah. Okay. Well, this has been an epic show, but I really loved this conversation and I'm um, excited that we had it. Um, so thank you everybody for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple podcasts. Um, it would be, we would love to hear what you would like us to talk about on future episodes and reviews also help other people find the show. Um, you can leave a comment on this show, um, on our Facebook page or on our website, jpmedia.co. Just choose talking and chill from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish public media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and to make sure that we're able to continue to bring you new episodes, which we will do again next month. Thank you so much, Sahava. Thank you. And by the way, I feel like I was super from this month. So thank you guys <laughs> for your patience. I feel like we were all like super ourselves this month and I really liked it. This is a great way yeah. to like start off the year. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Mimi I'm never gonna Thanks, guys. Um, listen to Kohala the same way again I you're, you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> alright see you next month